Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. A dispute arose among the disciples as to which one of them would be regarded as the greatest. For the time that we have this morning, I'd like to share with you from this thought, grappling with greatness. Grappling with greatness. Known as the Louisville Lip, the prodigious pugilist, Cassius Clay, known to many of us as Muhammad Ali, was known for his boxing braggadocio. He, as he ascended the ranks of professional boxing, would tell people, I am the greatest. In the sport of boxing, telling people you are the greatest is a way to promote oneself, a way to elevate oneself, to be able to distinguish oneself from another. The interesting thing about boxing, my sister and my brother, is that in many ways, you can prove that you are the greatest. If you stand triumphant and your opponent lays face down or laying on their back, you have proven that you are the greatest. But my sister, my brother, what's interesting about Muhammad Ali is that as he got older, he began to reflect upon his earlier antics. He began to think more deeply about that. And so Howard Cosell, his sidekick in propaganda, asked Muhammad Ali, he said, champ, you don't seem to brag like you used to brag. You don't seem to boast how you used to boast. Have you lost confidence in your skill? And Ali said, now, Howard, I don't have to go around telling people I am the greatest. What I need to do is go in the ring and prove my worth. I don't have to tell you what round I'm going to knock him down in. I don't have to tell you how I'm going to beat the opponent. All I need to do is be myself. And if I am myself, the results will speak for itself. Now, what's interesting about Muhammad Ali is that though he was a prize fighter of great renown, as he began to reflect about his concept of greatness, that is when he began to transcend the sport into a global icon. Even Ali had to rethink or grapple with this concept of greatness. My sister and my brother, we are here today as some of us are wrestling with this concept of greatness ourselves. Greatness, the, the striving or the thriving opportunity for us to prove ourselves has motivated many of us to succeed. I want to be number one in my class. I want to be better than my neighbor. I want people to recognize my productivity and my proficiency. I want people to see me in all of my grandeur. But my sister, my brother, if I'm honest with you today, and maybe if you're honest with me and honest with the people on your row, that pursuit of greatness 
has a cost. That cost is the cost of realizing that we are not as great as we think we are. And this pursuit of greatness begins to eat away at us because deep down as we seek to prop ourselves up with material gain or educational acumen or social clout, as we prop ourselves up, we find ourselves constantly in the rat race to prove ourselves in a world that's ever changing. Constantly putting our self-esteem at risk, putting relationships in jeopardy, not able to appreciate the goodness of our God because we're striving to prove ourselves to be great. I find it interesting that this is the text that we have for today because maybe in the wisdom of the sages, they understood that ministry can help to bring out this instinct. I want to be the best priest I can be. I want to pastor the greatest church I can pastor. All of these superficial, exterior, topical aspirations that we have as priests and ministers can eat away at our job to be the proclaimers of the gospel. How many preachers have I counseled in my years who want to be better than this one and better than that one only to find themselves against an an imaginary measuring stick in which the metrics continue to move and they find no peace in the calling that God gave them. Now, I would ask the clergy if that's true, but I will take their silence as consent. (laughs) The desire to prove ourselves, I want to be the best preacher, the best singer, lead the wealthiest church. All of these superficial things have us grappling with the concept of greatness. Now, I can imagine Jesus's frustration in Luke 22 as his disciples grapple with the concept of greatness. Jesus facing death, the gray clouds of his mortal life are beginning to gather and the storm clouds of death are about to rain down. And as Jesus faces the last few chapters of his life, here are his disciples, the ones that he has spent time with and taught and educated and listened to healed their mother-in-law. He saw about their needs. They heard the pearls of wisdom drip from his eternal lips. But yet at this particular time in the text, these men are arguing about who is going to be the greatest. As a professor, I know the feeling of pouring your energy into students and you realize they don't get it. They've heard Jesus in private settings, in intimate quarters. Jesus giving them words straight from the Father. Yet here they are wrestling with their carnal nature. Jesus is about to die, but yet the disciples' flesh will not die because they are wrestling with earthly propaganda. They want to be great in this world. Oh, how seducing it is to want to be great in a world that's built on corruption. How seducing is it to be great in a world that esteems image 
and not substance. How seducing a spirit of the age to want to be great without being of great service to your neighbor. And here we are, these disciples, like many of us in this room, striving to be faithful, yet find themselves flawed in the presence of the infinite. Jesus is trying to get through to them. I am going to bequeath to you this thing called the church. You are going to be my embodiment in the world to mobilize people toward God's aims for humanity. Yet here you are wrestling with the superficialities of this life. I can imagine Jesus's frustration. Who wants to spend their dying days refereeing seemingly a family feud? And it is, it is in this paradox, it is in the crux of this situation that we find ourselves afresh. As the gospel serves as a mirror to show us ourselves, we can see ourselves like the disciples, trying to make sense of what it means to be faithful, trying to be great, trying to aspire to be our best self, yet finding ourselves comparing ourselves to our neighbor, comparing ourselves to the invisible standard of an illusionary world, wrestling with insecurity so deep that only God can straighten them out. This text provides us a couple of clues as we grapple with the concept of greatness. If we turn our ear and listen to what the text tells us today, we might be able to find ways to creatively and with the Christocentric focus, wrestle with the grappling of greatness in our age. Greatness in our age, number one, means we have to deal with the scarcity of earthly greatness. The scarcity of earthly greatness. The text says, a dispute arose amongst the disciples as to which one of them will be regarded as the greatness. Do you hear the scarcity in the text? There are disciples in the plural and there is a dispute as to which one of the many would be the one. They're in their mind, in their collective imagination, there's only one person who can be great. Certainly, since Jesus is leaving, it must be me. And then you can imagine how conflict arises. It's amazing that when the mentality of scarcity is present, conflict is present also. The thought of there's not enough, there's not enough time, there's not enough money, there's not enough resources, there's not enough opportunity, the not enoughness of this world will lead us into conflict instead of creative change. We find ourselves wrestling, trying to be the one when Jesus never said that there was just one who could be great. What we see, my sister and my brother, in this text is that scarcity can rob us of the ability to see God's abundance in this world. Economic scarcity, social scarcity. There's not enough space. There's not enough money. There's not enough time. There's not enough. There's not enough. 
and that not enough will cause us to then engage in activities that will demean and dehumanize our neighbor. Many of you have either read or seen or heard of the Hunger Games, a plot that's based on scarcity as these poor tributes are fighting for an opportunity to have riches untold. They are fighting for respectability and these young people are fighting to the death because there is not enough for them. The popularity of the book, the popularity of the movie seems to tell me that that scarcity that takes place in this fictitious plot seems to have a non-fiction base. As many of us feel the scarcity of our age, we feel the scarcity of our time, and it robs us of the ability to have compassion, for us to have love, and for us to value what God has given us. Don't allow the scarcity, the thought of not enough, to rob what it is that God has given you in abundance. For the Bible says that Jesus has come to give us life and that more abundantly. So when we feel that urge to withdraw and to pull back and to push people away, we must rethink of that in light of the gospel. Because the gospel is not a gospel of scarcity. The gospel is a gospel of abundance. And as we lay in our beds at night wondering how are we going to afford this and how are we going to live in a world in which resources are seemingly dwindling and the population is seemingly rising. How are we going to live? My sister, my brother, this earth is abundant. Our God is abundant. But if our imagination is not abundant, we won't see any of that in our time. The scarcity of our earthly greatness, this world sets up a competition for us in which we can never come out on top. But yet this competition corrupts our kingdom effectiveness. This competition, this desire to be great corrupts our imagination. Jesus is attuned to this. I love Jesus because he speaks to the core of the issue. He doesn't dance around it. He says, look, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. Do you hear the power dynamics in the text? Do you hear the authority over, lord it over? This top-down power approach leads to what? Oppression. And yet these disciples are not trying to model kingdom-minded ministry. They're trying to take a secular mentality and bring it into God's kingdom. They want to be the CEOs of their day. They want to be the chief leaders of their day. They want to be royal in their service when the king of kings is telling them something different and how to serve. Jesus is saying, don't allow the corrupted imagination of the age to dilapidate the power of God's kingdom in the earth. Yes, it is okay to desire to want to be your best, but to be your best above others is a problem. Now, what's interesting about benefactors 
is that the power relationship is different. This is a debt-based relationship. I give to you, therefore you owe me. I support you, therefore you then pledge your allegiance to me. Now, some of us who have pastored and preached in churches know that none of our members would ever do that. None of our members would say, I give X amount of dollars, so I expect certain things to happen. That doesn't happen. It can't happen. But I have a sneaky suspicion that we have benefactors who want to impinge upon the gospel work because they are uncomfortable with the shifting power relations of God's of God's kingdom. Don't compromise the gospel for benefactors because God will send people to support the work and sometimes propping up people who are trying to then corrode the work will then undermine the fullness of what God wants to do. Jesus is confronting that imagination by saying these benefactors, this debt-based relationship is not the way I want to set the world up. I want to set you free to preach the gospel. But that means you must confront the scarcity of the age. What I love about Jesus is that he corrects this by saying, I am the model for your service. That might seem a little trite to some of us who have been to Sunday school. But how could it be the one who is co-equal with the father before all things he was and through him all things were made? So how can the flesh that Jesus created seem to rebel against him? He handles this by saying, this is not the example I want to set. I came to show you real service. Real service is taking a towel, wrapping it around my waist, and washing the clay feet of those who I created. How can the eternal God humble God's self so much that he will wash the feet of his creation? Yet his creation won't even wash the feet of one another. How can God, the one who put the twinkle in the stars, the wetness in the water, the shine in the sun, come to earth to show us what it means to really have power, yet we reject it every day? How can we reject the example and the image of Christ who says, if you want to have parts in me, Peter, I must wash your feet. Peter says, well, at first he was a little hesitant. Upon Jesus' admonition, he said, wash my hands, my head and my feet, because I don't want to miss what you're doing in this life. My sister, my brother, do not miss the example of Christ's service. It is not power over. It is power with. It is to empower, not to disempower. I was staying at a 
very nice hotel not too long ago on vacation. And I realized that I made a mess. I spilled something in the bathroom and so I needed some extra towels. So I go downstairs, I'm on the 10th floor. And I go downstairs and I tell the person at the front desk, hey, I made a mess, I need some towels. I'll clean it up, don't send anybody to clean it up. I'll clean it up. But could you have some towels sent to my room? And so the woman from housekeeping was standing right beside me. And she said, Dr. Jefferson, I'll be right there. I said, yes, ma'am. I look forward to seeing you shortly. So I get in the elevator and it's fairly crowded. We have people with their luggage and they're pressed against us. And you know how it is when it's the last elevator up and everybody kind of crams in. It's a very intimate time to know your neighbor. And as we continue to ascend, someone got off on the second floor. Someone got off on the third floor. Someone got on on the third and went to the fifth. Someone got on on the seventh and wanted to go down to the third. And we said, it does not work that way. (laughs) So as I finally get to my room, I just came from the desk. I open the door and there is the woman standing in my room with towels in the bathroom. I said, ma'am, you have clearly worked a feat of magic. You must tell me. I've got to know. How did you get to my room when I was on the elevator? And she said, Dr. Jefferson, I took the service elevator. The service elevator is for those who work at the hotel. It's an elevator that's hidden from everyone else. It looks just like a regular elevator, but it's retrofitted for service. It's retrofitted with a little more space to carry more things. It is designed with bumpers on it so we can move things. So while people were stopping on every floor trying to ascend to the top, I was able to go to the service elevator and beat everybody there. I said all that to say, my sister and my brother, you want to go to the top? You must take the service elevator. You must be willing to serve your way to the top. Yes, you want to climb like everyone else. You want to climb like the CEOs in your congregation and the good middle managers. You want to aspire to be great in the eyes of the world. But that is not what the gospel says today. The gospel says, if you want to be great, then take the service elevator. That's how you get to the heavenly riches that God has for you. Not trying to be like your neighbor, but to be like Jesus. That is the way to the top. My sister and my brother, my time is far spent, but I would be remiss if I did not tell you the ways to the top that this world offers are superficial and tangential. What lasts forever is the name of Jesus. The songwriter said kings and kingdoms, benefactors and those who support, emperors and rulers, all of those things will pass away. But there's something, there's something about the name of Jesus.